Let me ask you to open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus and chapter 8. The book of Exodus and chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to uh, to pull one out uh, from the seats there in front of you. And uh, you'll find our passage this morning, uh, Exodus 8, beginning in verse 16. You'll find it on page 50 in those pew Bibles. Do you remember where we are? God's people are enslaved in Egypt. Uh, God's people, the Hebrews, they're being cruelly oppressed. They are suffering terribly. And God has demanded that Pharaoh let his people go. And Pharaoh has refused. And so God is bringing mighty judgments upon Egypt because of her sin. Already we've seen water turn to blood. Last Sunday night, we saw that God caused a multitude of frogs to invade people's houses and their very lives. And this morning, we are at the third plague, the plague of gnats. And so let's begin reading. It's a short passage, beginning at verse 16. We'll read through verse 19. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, let's begin this morning with five general observations about this passage and about this plague. Five observations. Here's number one. This plague was a judgment on Pharaoh's deceit. This plague was a judgment on Pharaoh's deceit. Remember what happened last time. There were frogs everywhere. There are frogs in the homes of the Egyptians. There are frogs in the kitchen. There are frogs in the bedrooms. This was true for Pharaoh himself. There were frogs all over the palace. and His magicians could not reverse this, this plague. They could imitate the plague, but they couldn't reverse it. They could not make these frogs go away. And so in a moment of desperation, Pharaoh had made a promise to God, to the God of Moses, to the God Yahweh, Jehovah. Pharaoh had promised that if God would take the frogs away, he would let the people of God go and worship. Moses prayed, God answered, and the frogs are gone. And the stubborn heart of Pharaoh now refuses to let the people of God go. So Pharaoh has just lied to God. Pharaoh has just been deceitful towards Moses and Aaron. And of course, all of this is playing out exactly as God had said that it would. So now, unlike the first two plagues, Moses brings no warning to Pharaoh. That's why this passage is shorter than some of the others. There is no confrontation with Pharaoh in this passage. There's no announcement being made. Pharaoh refused to do what he said he would do, and now God is going to bring judgment in an unmistakable way. 
Well, the second observation is that this plague transformed dust into biting insects. This plague transformed dust into biting insects. Uh, We're told in our passage that all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And so, like the first plague, water transformed into blood, this also is a plague of transformation. The god of chemistry and biology is now transforming the molecules of this dust into living, flying, biting gnats. Now, obviously, verse 17 is using hyperbole when it says that all the dust of the earth became gnats. But the point was, this was not a small plague. There were gnats everywhere. They were thick in the land. There were millions and millions of them. Third observation. The insects may have been mosquitoes. The insects may have been mosquitoes. Uh, Our problem here is that we're not absolutely sure about exactly what kind of bug this Hebrew word refers to. Many translations choose to use the word gnat because gnat is a general term. There are a lot of flying insects, including mosquitoes, that are classified scientifically under the term gnats. Uh, In the commentaries, the most common interpretation, at least in recent years, seems to be that this probably was a plague of mosquitoes. Now, obviously, mosquitoes are the most hated of insects. Um, I recently saw a book on the types of mosquitoes and the epidemics that they've caused, and the book was entitled Mosquito, A Natural History of Our Most Persistent and deadly foe. And that's a fitting title because as small as mosquitoes are and as large as human beings are compared to a mosquito, these little creatures have still managed to wallop quite a punch on the human race in the pages of history. Can you think of another creature that has done more damage to people than disease-carrying mosquitoes? Uh, Even today, these little bugs carry diseases that kill several million people every year. Now, there are some who argue that this plague might have included some other kind of gnat, and there are still others who suggest that maybe God actually used a variety of different flying, biting insects. And then there are a few that argue that this word doesn't have to refer to flying creatures at all. Uh, The passage doesn't say that these creatures flew, only that they were on man and beast. And when you think of them being on man and beast, most people picture them flying. But the truth is there are animals like ticks that can get on man and beast. Um, Lice, maggots, other vermin are sometimes thought to be in view here. And if you use the King James Version, you know they translate this insect as as lice. I did read a commentary that made a strong argument for maggots being the the gnat here, and that's just disgusting. Um, Whatever kind of insect this plague included, it appears that they were indeed biting insects. Uh, These were insects that had reason to be on people and on animals. They were biting in order to gain nourishment. Uh, The first two plagues were annoyances, as we have seen. 
the water was turned to blood, but there was still drinkable water. The people just had to dig for it. Uh, having the frogs everywhere was disturbing, but we don't read of people being made sick or dying from the frogs. But each plague is a little more intense than the one that came before it. And now we're on the verge of real lasting harm being done because these insects are biting people. So you have the nation of Egypt. You have uh, millions and millions of gnats and they're biting people. They're biting the animals. They're everywhere. Will Pharaoh now repent? Will the Egyptians release Israel from slavery? Fourth observation. The magicians could not imitate this plague. The magicians could not imitate this plague. Uh, The power of God is superior even to the power of supernatural beings like Satan and his demons. Uh, We've argued over the last few weeks that these magicians were not David Copperfield illusionists, that these were priests of demonic powers who used supernatural power to imitate these plagues, but now they're at the end of what they can do. Uh, They were only able to duplicate on a small scale what God did in the first two plagues, but now they are defeated. They cannot compete with this third plague. The, 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 The amount of power is beyond them. In fact, after this third plague, the contest between God and the magicians is over. The magicians will no longer have an important role in the rollout of these plagues. In fact, they acknowledge in our passage that this work is the work of a higher power than any they have because they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, they don't say which God. They don't use the name of Moses God. There's no capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in what they say. Instead, they use the generic word for God, the word L. They're saying to Pharaoh that whatever God it might be, It's causing these gnats to be everywhere. He's a God more powerful than any we represent. He's a God doing more than anything we can compete with. And so finally, after three horrendous plagues, Pharaoh realizes that the God of Moses is true and powerful, and he humbles himself, and he submits to the true God. Right? Wrong. It's simply astounding. This is our fifth observation. Pharaoh dug in his heels. Pharaoh dug in his heels. Uh, Here we see the irrationality of sin. Pharaoh has no logical, reasonable reason to continue being stubborn. It is very clear already. He's not going to win this battle with the God of Moses. All rational thinking says that it's in his best interest and it's in the best interest of his family and it's in the best interest of his nation to submit to this God. But in the face of all common sense, Pharaoh hardens his heart and becomes even more stubborn. He will not be placed subservient to some foreign God. How many there are today who continue to live in rebellion against God even when it no longer makes any rational sense for them to do so. An atheist 
may ignore the commands of God. And, and, and that at least makes some sense. The atheist is trying to convince himself that God doesn't exist. And so it makes sense that he's going to rebel against the commands of the Bible to try and make his atheism true. But in our culture, we have a very strange phenomenon. Here in the Southeast especially, we have a lot of people who will say the Bible is the word of God. And that there is a God up in heaven. And that he's good. And that he's wise. And that he's loving. But I'm going to continue to live in willful disobedience. It doesn't make sense. We have people, if we were to poll people that live even around this church, and we would ask questions like, do you believe the Bible is scripture? Yes. Do you believe God is good? Yes. Do you believe that God loves you? Yes. And then you say, do you believe that God would have you to live this certain way? No. Are you going to change? No. You see? It it flies in the face of reason. There's an irrationality to sin. I was telling somebody recently, sin makes you crazy. If you believe the Bible is the word of God, and you believe there is a God before whom one day you will stand, and if you believe this God is smarter than you, and you believe this God is wiser than you, and you believe this God has your best interest at heart, why in the world would we not want to learn what He says and obey Him? His path is the path of blessing. There's no reason to rebel against this God. It's moral insanity. But sin so hardens our hearts, and sin so builds up our pride, that we begin to think in insane ways. When we're caught up in sin, things that are irrational begin to sound rational to us. Certainly when we look around at our culture, our culture is in the grip of moral insanity. And so let Pharaoh be a warning to us. If we get, if we get entangled in sin, if we continue to live lives of rebellion against God, it will warp our thinking so that we will make foolish decisions that not only harm ourselves, but harm others. Pharaoh's stubbornness is going to bring consequences on every citizen of his land. It's not just Pharaoh that Pharaoh's heart and heart is going to hurt. It's going to hurt every person under his authority. Now, we've seen that each of these plagues is the God of Israel setting an attack against one of the Egyptian gods. For each of these plagues, we could easily list several Egyptian gods that are being dishonored by that plague, that are being shown to be false by that plague. But instead of listing several gods for each plague, I've been trying to draw your attention to just one. One Egyptian god for each plague that is being particularly assaulted. And for this third plague, probably the Egyptian god being primarily dethroned is Jeb. So everybody say Jeb. Jeb. G-E-B. Jeb. Like the other two gods we've talked about, Jeb was a major god in the Egyptian pantheon. He was considered the god of the earth. That is, the god of of land, the god of soil, the god of dirt. Um, Some have said that Jeb was to the Egyptians what mother nature is to many modern people. 
He was the God of land. He was the God of all that springs forth from the land. And so he was the God of forest and the God of trees and the God of mountains. Uh, hills and valleys were often called the house of Jeb. Sometimes Jeb is depicted as brown or green with leaves on his skin. If the crops did not grow, it was because Jeb was upset. Earthquakes were said to be the laughter of Jeb. When Egyptians died, they believed that their souls went into the judgment hall of Osiris where their hearts would be weighed. And if they were found to be true and just... They would escape Jeb, the earth, and they would make it to paradise. But if their hearts were not found to be just, then Jeb would continue his hold on them, and they would never escape his grasp. This was an important God to the Egyptians. Uh, Interestingly, his wife's name was Nut, N-U-T. Maybe we should say it Newt, but I think it's funny to think that his wife's name was Nut. Your wife's a nut, I know. So, together they (laughs) presented... Together, they produced an egg, okay, from which supposedly the great sun god Re, or Ra, came. And since the great Egyptian god Re supposedly came from a great goose egg, Jeb, the father of Re, or Ra, was often associated with geese. And so his nickname was the great cackler, the great cackler. The priests of Jeb served him near present-day Cairo in the Heliopolis, also called the City of the Sun. So here is the point. By the power of the true God, Yahweh, Aaron was able to take the earth, the dirt of the ground, and transform it into bugs. And in this way, the God of Moses and Aaron was showing that he has utter sovereignty over the land on this globe. He had already showed that he is the God of water. Now he is showing that he is the God of land. Yes, he can transform water into blood. He can also transform dirt into gnats. One by one, God is taking the Egyptian gods off their thrones, showing that it is he and he alone who has ultimate sovereignty over all of the rims that they supposedly controlled. Mount Hermon, who should we pray to for the crops to grow? Who holds the power over earthquakes and rock slides and disasters of the land? Who is the true God of hills and valleys and forests and deserts? When you're walking around Battle Park or hiking up at Medoc Mountain, should you give all praise to Jeb? Should you give all praise to Mother Nature? Or should you give all praise to God? We know him by his other name, Jesus Christ, for he is the true God. What is the prophetic lesson of this passage? Uh, See, just as Aaron struck the ground in order to bring judgment here, so Revelation teaches that before the final judgment, God will strike the earth, the ground, with judgments of warning. In other words, we've already seen that these plagues leading up to a final judgment in the book of Exodus are a picture of what Revelation describes as far as the judgment at the end of the world. It's no accident that the writer of Revelation leans heavily on Egypt and the plagues of Egypt to teach his truths. And one truth that we see in Revelation coming straight from the book of Exodus 
is that in the, the, in the last days, God will strike the earth, the ground, with judgments of warning. Revelation is full of such judgments. There are many ways that God strikes the earth to humble us and to draw our attention to our need for him. Famine, for example. Crops not growing. People suffering, starving, dying. We see that again and again and again taught in the book of Revelation. Famine reminds us that as powerful as we human beings are, at the end of the day, we don't have the power to make the crops grow. Our very lives are lives of dependence. Maybe we forget this because most of us aren't farmers anymore and we get our food from, the, from Walmart and from Harris Teeter and from McDonald's and, and we, just, we, we give them the money and the food's there. Where did the food come from? Food has to be produced. Food has to be grown. At the end of the day, only God makes that food come to us, which is why we pray, give us, Lord, our daily bread. In the 20th century alone, more than 70 million people died of famine. And that's considered a very conservative estimate. 70 million people died of famine. Another judgment of God that we see in Revelation from the earth is pestilence. It's exactly what we see in this plague here in Exodus. Revelation 6 speaks of a more severe pestilence. Pestilence that brings death upon the earth. And so we're talking about flies tonight. We're going to talk about locusts a little bit later on. And as we do, we're going to see how um, we're, we should expect these kinds of things to happen in our world even today. And they are happening. Uh, For example, when we do the message on locusts, I'll share some accounts in very recent years of entire nations devastated, thousands dying because of locusts. Pestilence is a judgment of warning. All of these judgments are small judgments meant to wake us up, meant to say, you're not in charge of this world, but God is in charge of this world. Trust him, turn to him, depend on him before it's too late. I already mentioned that the earth god Jeb was particularly associated with earthquakes. And five times in Revelation we read of earthquakes. And it's clear both from that book and many other places in the Bible that natural disasters like earthquakes are warnings from God of a judgment to come. Friends, it may seem strange to you to hear me preaching each week about the end of the world. The end of the world is coming. I have no idea when. I know we're closer to it today than we were yesterday. The end of the world still might be thousands of years from now. Or the end of the world might be before this sermon is over. But God was gracious to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And he gave many lesser plagues before bringing great judgment through the 10th plague and ultimately the Red Sea disaster. Basically, God gave Pharaoh in Egypt many, many, many opportunities to repent. If he had given seven plagues before the climactic judgment, we would have said, look at the graciousness of God. But he gave 10 He gave them over and over again opportunities to repent. And in the same way, you're supposed to look at this world around you and you turn on CNN or you turn on MSNBC or you turn on Fox News, whichever one, I don't care, turn on NPR, whichever one, whatever you prefer for your news source, they're all going to tell you about natural disasters, famine, pestilence, wars. And what did Jesus say that all of those things are supposed to do to us? 
You're supposed to say, sober up, brother, sister. The end of the world is coming. Are you ready? And are you right with your maker? Are you here this morning refusing to turn from your sins? Are you here refusing to acknowledge the true God and to submit your heart and will to him? This God is good, and he is worthy of your obedience. But whatever you think about this God, whether you think he is good and worthy or not, here is the bald truth. God is God, and he will do as he pleases with the lives of men. You will not win in a rebellion against God. It is utter foolishness, utter folly to keep rebelling against God and refusing to repent. Tomorrow may be your dying day. Let today be your repenting day, says Thomas Watson. Let us note a third purpose of these plagues, and here it is, to show the awesome power of God. One of the great reasons that God performed these plagues upon the earth was to show for all generations to come the awesome power of God. We see his power over water. We see his power to call forth creatures to do his will as with the frogs of the Nile. Now we see his power over the dust of the ground. Mount Hermon, as we see these plagues, we are beholding the very power of God. Psalm 62, verse 11, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Let me mention seven quick truths about God's power. Seven quick truths about God's power. Number one, for the unbeliever, the power of God is a frightening doctrine. For the unbeliever, the power of God is a frightening doctrine. It is a power that will be unleashed upon them in the torments of hell. The power of God will pummel them forever and ever in righteous wrath because they so hardened their hearts against God and rebelled against Him who is so worthy of their love and adoration. This is a strong word. This is a hard word. But it's a word that must be preached boldly Though lovingly in our skeptical age. Second Thessalonians 1, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, says he will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. You're being destroyed every day and it never ends. The destruction is never complete. You're being eternally destroyed. He says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, His power. Mount Hermon, the Bible is not unclear here. Even the power of God unleashed upon the Egyptians pales in comparison to the power of God that is unleashed upon the wicked in that place called hell. Is there anyone in this room for whom that's your future? Today is the day to repent. 
Today is the day to see Christ as an all-sufficient Savior for you. Second truth. For the believer, the power of God is a precious, precious doctrine. For the unbeliever, the power of God is a frightening doctrine because that power is going to come against you in hell. But for the Christian, the power of God is a precious doctrine because it is the power of our Father to protect us. Psalm 21, verse 13 is the cry of the Christian. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Is that you? Do you find yourself in the morning or in the evening singing the praises of the power of your God? The Puritan Stephen Charnick said this, The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can do whatsoever he pleases. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all of the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the external counsels if power did not step in to execute them. This is what we say about the United Nations, right? United Nations, they love to say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to... But then they never, in the end, actually have any power, right? They have no strength to execute. They can make as many resolutions as they want. It doesn't have teeth, right? Stephen Charnock says God has all of these attributes. He's good, he's wise, he's loving. But what makes them work is his power. Without power, God's mercy would be but a feeble pity. His promises, but an empty sound. His threatenings, a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, nor restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. You see, friends, the power of God is the power to do his people good. All of God's love and compassion and mercy and fatherly care would be of little help to us if God did not have the power to act on them. Infinite power means infinite ways that God can show us love. Infinite power means you cannot be destroyed if you are His. What enemy can come against you? They can overcome the Father who's loving you and protecting you. Number three, I love this. The power of God is also the power of Christ. The power of Christ. (laughs) The magicians say to Pharaoh in our passage that this plague of gnats, they say this is the finger of God. And then you're reading in the Gospels. And you're reading in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11. And we find Jesus declaring that he is casting out demons by the finger of God. In other words, Jesus says the same power that assaulted the demons in Egypt and brought the plagues upon Egypt is now the power in this son of a carpenter walking around Galilee, healing people, casting out demons, raising the dead, speaking to the waves. Jesus says, I am the God from the Exodus, and I am now here. As a human being and with the power of God, with the finger of God, I do what I do. 
Isn't it amazing that the scriptures say that this amazing power over even spiritual forces, right? He's casting out demons. And Jesus says it's by the finger of God. His finger. Think about what he can do with his whole hand, right? It's just his finger. And he does these things. What can you do with your finger compared to your hand? Dear Christians, our Lord Jesus Christ is the omnipotent God. There is nothing impossible for Jesus. Since he is your heavenly husband, since he is your bridegroom who loves you so, this means that nothing can ever truly harm you. Nothing can do you any eternal harm. You are protected by an immortal, all-powerful Savior who loves you more than words can say. Dear sheep, you have a good shepherd in your Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Number four. The power of God is at work in us who are Christians. This is good too. The almighty power of God is at work not only around us and not only for us, but actually in us. So for example, 2 Thessalonians 1.11. To this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. In other words, your faith, your trust in God, your trust in God's promises, every good desire, every good work you want to perform, these all happen because of the power of God at work inside of you, within you. Mount Hermon, have you ever come to grips with what Paul says when he says that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in your soul through the person of the Holy Spirit. Number five, the power of God is greater than all demonic power. The power of God is greater than all demonic power. We've seen this. The Egyptian gods were not actually gods at all, but Deuteronomy says they were demons who were being called gods. And in Exodus 15, after all ten plagues are over, and Israel has crossed through the Red Sea, and the Red Sea has just come pouring down on the charioteers and the Egyptian military, we're going to see the people of God crying out, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And then we'll get to Exodus 18, and we'll hear Moses' pluralistic father-in-law Jethro saying, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Our God is greater than all the forces of darkness. So do not be afraid. The devil himself, nor any of his henchmen, can do any lasting harm to a blood-bought child of God. Number six, the power of God to keep you is greater than sin's power to take you. The power of God to keep you is greater than sin's power to take you. So sin wants to take you from God. Sin wants to lead you away from God. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is the nature of sin. 
It leads you down a spiral of deceit that would turn you away from the living God. But as strong as sin is, and sin can be strong, temptations can be strong, but God is much stronger. 1 Peter 1.5 says that Christians are those, are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says God's power is like a bodyguard and it will not let you be mortally wounded. God will use his power to do whatever is necessary to keep you believing and to bring you safely into heaven. Indeed, on that day when we enter into the celestial city and we look back at the hard journey we took to get there, we will see that it was the power of God that carried us the whole way. Let sin do all it will. Jesus will not lose one of his own. Uh, Hal Young mentioned one time that uh, his roommate in college kept a newspaper article posted on the bulletin board in their college dorm room and the article was from the sports section of the newspaper and the headline was saints win in overtime saints win in overtime and uh, that's not just a sports headline that's a biblical truth right it's uh, it's our assurance whatever may happen during this regulation period we call life when time runs out and judgment day comes we know that we are safe in the everlasting strong arms of jesus we have won the victory through jesus christ heaven is in our future let the devil let sin do all it will to defeat us our power is in christ finally number seven this is a sweet place to end the power of God is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or think. The power of God is able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or think. This is Ephesians 3.20. If we were to take all that we could ask for, all that we could even imagine, and we put it together, God can do even more for us than that. So if each of us took a thousand years, okay, let's each take a thousand years, to write a billion different requests for God's blessings. And then we take our thousand years of writing a billion requests of God and we bring them all together and we bring them to God, we'll find that he can still do more than we ever dreamed to ask. Church, do you need more of the power of God in your life? Are you struggling to be loving? Are you struggling to have a gentle, kind demeanor? Are you struggling to exercise patience? Or are you struggling to discern? Are you struggling to find courage or to be compassionate? Are you struggling to kill lust or greed or selfishness in your life? God's power is able to do all of this. Let us pray. Let us pray. Let us pray and pray some more. That God would overflow his power onto us as individuals, onto us as families, and onto us as a church. May he unleash upon us the opposite of ten mighty plagues of judgment. Would that God would unleash upon this church ten mighty blessings of his power. May we see conversions to Christ. May we see our sins being defeated.
May we see our hearts and minds being united together. May we see our worship being enlivened by God's felt presence with us. May we see pastors and missionaries raised up from this place. May we see greater generosity and sacrifice for the kingdom. May we see stronger marriages and our children being brought up in godliness. May we see our community being radically transformed by the gospel. May we see the truths of God being heralded faithfully and clearly from this place. And may God bring care for the poor and for orphans and the broken through us. May those ten blessings come upon our church. And so much more. More than we could ever dream, think, or imagine. Would that God would do so for Christ's sake. That his name would be magnified among the nations. Would that God would use his strong arm to do good things for Christ's sake in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray that he will. Let's pray.